You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Awkward, scary conversation where a couple mutually agrees about their romantic status in a relationship. Like, are we friends? Is it more than friends? Uh, We've got to DTR. We've got to define the relationship. In other words, DTR is sort of that conversation which answers the question, where are we at in this relationship? Where are we? And as a pastoral team, we felt like it was a good time to bring everybody in the church together for a conversation about defining the church relationship. So we have church in there. We took a common acronym and Christianized it, which I, I typically don't like that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, just taking some world slogan and baptizing it. But here I thought it was appropriate to define the church relationship. Friends, we have been in two years of upheaval as a culture, as a world, really. Um, Two years of upheaval, two years of scattering, two years of confusion um, as as a nation, as a world, as a city, as a church. And with the, tam- uh, with the pandemic potentially on a downslope, certainly the, currently it's on a pretty steep downslope, uh, we thought it was worth our church family sort of asking that question, where are we at? Where are we at as a church? It's, it's hard to believe that two years have gone by, but it was two years ago that really the crisis started. And for many people, for me, For many, and and as I've read, uh, for many people, it really began on March 11th, 2020. It's almost exactly two years ago, March 11th. That was the day that the World Health Organization um, declared that we were in a global pandemic. I don't remember that declaration on March 11th, but that's when it happened. March 11th was the day that President Trump stopped travel from Europe into the U.S., I don't remember that announcement. But at 6 p.m. on March 11th, on social media, Tom Hanks announced that he had COVID. And I remember that distinctly. (laughs) And wanted to say, Wilson! I mean, Tom Hanks has COVID. This is real. This is real. And at 8.30, two and a half hours later, at 8.30, I remember where I was standing when I found out about this. At 8.30, the NBA said, we're halting. The season is on pause. We're not playing any more games because players have COVID. And if pro sports is about anything, it's about selling tickets and money. And I thought, if they're shutting down, this thing is ramping up fast. Well, things began to change very quickly after that. In the spring of 2020, of course, things locked down. And we, like most churches, pivoted to live stream, had no idea what we were doing, but pivoted to live stream and to Zoom community groups. And for a season, we lost all personal interaction, in-person interaction with one another. Um, That was a tough time. We regathered in the summer of 2020 with some careful protocols in place. But in some ways, it's never been the same. It's never been the same since then. 
Some people have scattered since then. Some have become isolated. Some remain, you watching online, maybe you're one of them, but some remain scattered and isolated to this day. Some of us found new churches. And some people from new church, other churches found our church. Some of you showed up here within the last two years, perhaps for a, from another place. And for whatever reason, and I'm sure they're complex and many, uh, there was a shuffling of the deck of church life in Frisco. I've talked with other pastors in the city about that. They've all experienced the same thing, a shuffling of the deck. It has been sad for our church that some people moved from active, vibrant involvement two years ago to sort of fringe, peripheral involvement, and in some cases to no involvement anywhere at all. The last two years have meant loss, in some cases even grievously permanent loss. We've had a couple of our church members die of covid in the last two years. And most of us have had friends or family members, certainly co-workers, people we know somewhere that have died. And so some of us in our church are still in a place of grieving for someone they lost in the last two years. The last two years have been disruptive. They have been disorienting. They've been disorienting in the church because some things that we thought were solid and secure in the American church, well, it turned out they weren't so stable. Things like the church's unity, the church's unity in the, in the U.S., the church's unity at Grace Church as well. I don't know any church who hasn't experienced a testing of their unity in the last two years. And what we found was that in the test of our unity, in some points, we were far weaker than we realized. Christians have had sharp disagreements in the past two years around the whole pandemic. Sharp disagreements about gathering and when to gather and should we gather and how do we gather. Sharp disagreements about things like masking or vaccinations. In the middle of all this, in two years of disruption, there was also a, well, a little presidential election that we were told, I'm here neither to confirm nor deny, but we were told was the most important election of our lifetime. And what we found was that that divided Believers, What was previously in other elections may have been more secure and unified in the church. Well, no longer great, sharp disagreements over the most recent election and its results. Racial issues, which are not anything new, uh, but they surfaced in new ways in the church in the past couple of years. They surfaced in our church in the past couple of years. I mean, there was a moment in time uh, where there was real unity. I mean, everyone could agree that the murder of George Floyd was horrific. But beyond that, very quickly, opinions 
uh, you know, splintered. And there really wasn't much consensus at all. And, and, and churches across the country remain divided on racial issues, in some cases divided along racial lines, but divided about what are the real problems with race and what are the real solutions to those problems, you know? And, and you, there's just not a consensus among Bible-believing Christians on that. There's a lot of polarization where now, whatever you believe about anything, you are with the good guys or you are with the bad guys. You love the Bible or you hate the Bible. There's only two sides on any issue, it seems, anymore. We've, a- we've absolutely lost so much discernment and the ability to nuance rather than put everything in one category of you're for it or you are against it, whether it's pandemic, whether it's politics, whether it's race or any other number of issues. So it's been two years of scattering, two years of isolation, two years of drifting, two years of loss, two years of grieving, two years of disruption, two years of some measure of division. Thankfully, in our church, there's also been some tremendous bright spots along the way. We have seen God at work saving people. I remember in COVID when we first baptized anyone and said, we're like, we're going to all get our COVID germs, you know, uh, in the baptistry and trust. I don't know. We don't really believe in holy water, but in that moment we did keep everybody healthy, Lord. Uh, you know, so I remember the first baptisms we did, like, do they walk down in a mask or not? I remember having those conversations, uh, not going to go underwater in a mask. So what, what do we do? Uh, I remember talking about all of that. But the good thing was people got baptized. People have been saved. We've seen some restored marriages in the last two years, which has been wonderful. We've seen people, in spite of the challenges and difficulty, press into community. I've, I've had people tell me, I'm joining a church for the first time ever. I've been a Christian, but never a member of the church until now. So we've had people join in meaningful community. We've had people grow in godliness take steps of faith and serve others and love others at great sacrifice um, in, in the last couple of years. And that's been wonderful to watch. And by the grace of God, though, though I mentioned division, I, I want to be fair and honoring to the Lord and communicate that we've also managed to have some edifying, civil conversations about the hot topics of the day and keep the gospel central. In the midst of it all, we've been able to do that. We've had people on differing sides of differing issues who uh, have listened to one another. And even in cases where they might not have been persuaded to full agreement with someone's position on any number of issues, uh, there's been a respect and a love and a unity in Christ. And that's probably been one of the highlights of the last two years. God has been with us. He's provided for us financially. He has blessed us. But like most churches in our city and most churches in our country, we are not together as we once were, or at least as we once perceived that we were. We're not together on all issues, and we're not together in person either like we once were. And that's why we thought it's time to 
just pause after two years and before we go into the next series, take a little time to define the relationship. Define the relationship. So in the coming questions, uh, coming uh, weeks, we're going to wrestle with this question. What does it mean to be a part of a church? That was clear two years ago. That's not as clear anymore. We've got people putting on their Oculus goggles and going to Metaverse Church or whatever it is nowadays where you've got your little icon walking in. So uh, is that a church? I don't know. Is it? Let's, well, I haven't, I actually I do know, but, uh, but I'm asking a rhetorical question. Is that a church? We're going to be asking questions like, what's my role personally in the church family? How do I relate to my brothers and sisters that I'm called together with, especially when we disagree? What should my participation in a church look like? Questions like, does gathering in person even really matter? What's God's view? What's a biblical understanding of our gatherings together? What does that mean? Am, Am I functionally part of a church family, this church family or another church family? How does the gospel reorient my understanding of church? And how does the gospel reorient reorient my understanding of my callings when I scatter from the church into my daily life out there in all my various places? After a season of disruption, we feel like we need to ask, who are we? Who are we as a church? As pastors, we want to know who are we. We want to know who is in our family. Who needs care? Who needs encouragement? Who needs to be deployed afresh in service? Who needs to be deployed and delegated leadership in the church? Who needs to be lovingly challenged? Who's moved on and we don't even know about it? yet. Ultimately, we want to learn how we can grow as leaders and how we can all grow as a church. And we want to be clear that each of us understands what is our responsibility together so that we may all flourish in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ and his people. That's the goal. We all understand God's calling on our lives, God's calling on our church, God's calling on our responsibilities together so that we each are growing and it, with Christ and with his people. Clear on God's purpose. That's the goal of this, of this series. And that was the longest introduction I've ever given to a sermon. <clears throat> but it's the introduction for the next six weeks of sermons. So I won't give that introduction again. I'll jump in. But that's the context. That's the background. That's the the ethos. That's where we find ourselves and why we want to talk about what does it mean to be a part of a church. I'm going to start the series today with the idea of church as family. This is a very simple message. It started out in Romans 12 to be verses 9 through 16, uh, three robust points, and then it went to verses 9 and 10, and then mostly it's now just verse 10 and a single point. So it's going to be very focused and very uh, simple today. Romans 9 and 10, uh, uh, Romans 12 verses 9 and 10, the church as family. This is God's word. 
Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The context for these two verses uh, is really found in verse 1. So we just went through Ephesians and we saw there's a section that tells us all that God has done and a section that tells us how we respond. In some ways, Romans is very similar. And in chapter 12, it's making the turn to how the people of God are to respond to what he's done in the gospel. And it starts in verse 1 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So he's saying, based on everything that God has done for you, you are now to live your life for his glory as a sacrifice for him. And here's what that looks like. And he starts, first of all, in chapter 12 by saying, here are the gifts of grace that God gives. And here's how you can use those, how you're called to use your gifts to build up his people. So in light of his mercy, um, live this way using your gifts to build up the people of God. Then in verse 9, which we just read, he transitions to the most central part of the church in terms of how we govern ourselves, and it's love. He starts off by saying, let love be genuine. And the next verses will be about how we love one another, how we rejoice with one another, how we live in harmony. He's going to paint this picture of what it looks like for a people to really love, but he, he starts with offering us this identity That's what we see, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. So first of all, he says, let love be genuine, verse 9. There are three Greek words for love that show up in the New Testament. All of them are in these two verses. This is a passage about love. These verses are about love. First of all, he says, let love be genuine or sincere. The word love there is one commonly known. It's agape. You know, let the love of God the selfless giving love that's found in God. Let that same love be in you and so that you love one another sincerely or genuinely. When it says be genuine, it means, uh, the word actually means without hypocrisy. It's a word tied to acting. So let love be genuine without play acting. Don't fake it. Don't act a certain way because you know that's what you're supposed to do. But have a sincere self-giving, the kind of love God demonstrates, have that kind of love for one another. And a a culture of genuine love is not just a culture of niceness. That's why he says, next of all, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That, That ties to it. A culture of real love is a culture where we care about our brother and sister and we, we speak out against evil, any evil and harm that, that may affect them or that they contribute to. We cling to the good. Genuine love tells the truth to one another and acts for the good of one another. And in our season as a church, love for one another means caring for each other so that no one detaches himself or herself from the people of God. We don't want anyone to grow indifferent to the purposes of God uh, among his people.
people, but we want to help one another and call one another to genuine active love where we're in a context to receive and to give genuine love. In view of the mercy of God, he says, and if you've read Romans, in view of the thickest doctrinal teaching about what Christ has done for us, chapters 1 through 11, that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, in view of all that God has done in Christ for us, receive that love, agape, and turn and genuinely love one another. Stand against evil in one another's lives. Protect one another against evil and cling to the good. Promote the good among one another. And then he gives this picture that genuine love is best understood as family love. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. With like brothers is what he's saying. We're going to see that means siblings, ultimately. It's inclusive of brothers and sisters. But love one another like family. And so the big idea is starting with, in view of the mercy of God, with the view of the mercy of God, love one another. He's saying, because of the Father's love for you, love one another like family. Because he is our Father, we're brothers and sisters, so love one another like family. This is our identity. We can pick out other terms in the Bible, the body of Christ, the temple. We're going to look at that next week, how we're the temple of God. Um, we, we could look at various pictures of what it means to be a part of his church, his church, the called out ones. But the dominant picture in the New Testament is family. That's who we are. And so he gives us an identity. He doesn't just say love, but he says, love, this is your identity, love as brothers. Family identity. I don't know if you knew this, but the most common designation for a Christian in the Bible is brothers. Uh, and it's an inclusive term. There are some times when the Bible might say brothers, where it's, you know, being addressed to a few men. But typically, almost always, when it says brothers, there'll be a footnote in your Bible that will say brothers and sisters, because it was simply an inclusive term as if mankind, mankind means all humans. It doesn't just mean men. And so in that way, it's an inclusive generic term for siblings. So we get brothers and sisters as a description of Christians 139 times in the New Testament. We're called family, brothers, 139 times. We're called Christians three times. In the whole New Testament, we're referred to as Christians three times. That's our most common designation today. We're Christians. But the most common designation in the Bible is brothers. We are family. Now, in verse 10, it says that we are to love like uh, with brotherly affection. The New American Standard Version translates that a little bit more literally. It says, be devoted to one another with brotherly love. Uh, so we see the other two kinds of love here. God's love, agape, was verse 9. Verse 10, it says in the ESV, love one another. That's the second word for love. Um, with brotherly affection. The NIV translates that brotherly love. So those are the other two words. The first word. Love one another in verse 10. The NASB translates it, be devoted to one another. That's the idea. This kind of love is a devotion. It speaks of our devotedness to one another. And then the third word is brotherly affection. And we know that word, uh, Philadelphia, which is, is the root there, which speaks of brotherly love. And, and so he's, he's saying here that there is a brotherly or sisterly love that we are called to as family. 
And it's more than an instruction. It really roots our identity when we see how much of the Bible speaks of the church as family. The reality is we will always behave and we will always live out our identity. So it's important that we have a biblical identity of ourselves and, and of our church and of who we are. We are a family. We are not a dispenser of spiritual goods and services. For consumers, we are a family. Now, it's difficult for us to understand the force of this command. Uh, this would have sounded very different to the first century reader in the Greco-Roman world than it does to us. Now, we use the word brother in all kinds of ways. We could talk about people in the military being a band of brothers. We could talk about people in a fraternity being fraternity brothers. Uh, sometimes people call each other brother that don't even know each other. Hey, you know, thank you very much. You're welcome, brother. Or I got your brother. Or whatever. Brother, we just call people that. That's a, that's a common designation. But in the first century, in the Greek of this time, the Greek language of this time, brother had a restricted usage. A single usage. Uh, Commentator Dick Lucas says, the New Testament, now listen to this, the New Testament is the only place where the word has been found outside the context of a home. A first century reader would therefore come across it here with a sense of shock. What he's saying is, if you read all the Greek literature of the first century, you will never see the word brother used like we do outside of a family. It only means an actual sibling. And so when he's saying, love each other like you love your siblings, like you do your family, that is a new idea in their language for the first readers. Brotherly love was unique. But Paul is saying, just as Jesus really taught as well, that when we believe in Christ, we are joined to a new family, an eternal family. And so Paul is saying here, church, love one another in your new family. This is really your family. We are familiar, perhaps too familiar with the idea of the church as family. We say that, yeah, our church family. So we're pretty comfortable with that idea, but it's a radical idea. In the New Testament world, it's a crazy idea. And I think if we really understand what it means and apply it, it'll be crazy today. It'll be a crazy idea for us. But it's helpful to apply it to understand just how crazy it was in that day to speak of brotherly affection among an organization as the church. In a book called When the Church Was a Family, New Testament scholar Joseph Hellerman, who teaches at Biola University, um, he writes about how uh, examples from the first century of how families worked, how groups worked. And so he does a little bit of sort of anthropology study of how this functioned in that world so that we would understand the terminology that Paul uses. And after a lot of historical examples and biblical examples as well, he concludes by drawing three principles of what we learn about life and understanding in the New Testament world, in the Greco-Roman world. Now, I'm not speaking of the church, but I'm speaking of the context where this came, Greco-Roman world. So here's the first principle. In the New Testament, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. That's just very clear. That's very clear in many of the cultures some of you come from. 
especially uh, internationals, people from other cultures, they understand this because I say where I came from, it was a group, especially in a shame honor culture. It's, it's the group that I'm identified with that is most important. It's not the individual. In, in our culture, we, we're committed not just to individualism, but a radical individualism. So this idea is foreign. So we have a real difficult time understanding and applying the scripture because we're primarily committed to a radical individualism rather than a radical group kind of identity. Principle number two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family, meaning actual family. Somebody could be adopted into that family as well, but the, the family unit and the extended family, that's the most important group. So out of all of the groups in the first century, people would say it's the household that is the most important group. So we're, we're a part of Rome. Uh, if you're a metal worker, you're a part of the metal workers guild, uh, which would be like a union kind of, sort of. So you're part of the metal, metal workers guild. You might be part of a area where people live together. So you may be part of that group of that part of the city, but your closest, the group's most important and your closest group is the family. And then here's the kicker, principle three. In the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings. So I'm not talking about in the Christians. I'm talking about in Rome, this is the closest relationship. Marriages, as we've talked about in the first century, were of, at times strategic or of convenience. The bringing together, marriages were largely arranged, and they were bringing together two families for some important cause. It wasn't about personal love. It wasn't about uh, a romance. It was about having legitimate families, uh, and it was about joining families together. So sometimes husbands and wives brought together, it may not have you know, that, that may have been an arranged thing, but your siblings are with you forever. We also have talked about how life revolved around men and the way men in the Greco-Roman world functions was this way. Generally speaking, you marry a woman so that she can bear you legitimate children. You have a romantic relationship with a mistress and you take care of regular sexual needs through a prostitute or temple prostitute. That might be male or female. And, and that was a common way that men lived. It was just was understood. So the marriage wasn't necessarily this center relationship. So that's why we put Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, we just went through so radical. What was central was your commitment to the family and your commitment to your siblings in particular. So when Paul says to people in Rome, love one another with brotherly affection, that's like in our ears, it would sound like spousal affection or something like that. It doesn't say that because that's a sexual relationship, but, but almost, it sounds, what's the closest, most committed relationship? I mean, for a Roman man, it would be a greater uh, dishonor to break up with your siblings and leave your family than it would to leave your wife. It's the deepest relationship. So Paul takes that relationship under the inspiration of God and says, this is how you should look at the church. Take the most deeply committed relationship you know, and that is the people that you gather with. Hellerman goes on and he says this, I trust that you're beginning to see why we simply cannot import our American ideal of what it means to be a brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. Brother meant immeasurably more than the word means to you and me. It was their most important family relationship. 
At this point, you're now prepared, perhaps, for the first time ever to properly appreciate what the early Christians meant when they referred to one another as brother or sister in Christ. If your identity is a family member, a brother with this kind of love and affection and commitment, your attitude and behavior will be much different. Because being a member of the family, the church family, it's not being a supporter of an institution. It's not being a member of a club. It's not being an attendee at an event online or in person. It's not being an occasional volunteer or an occasional donor to that organization that really has a good cause. No, it's about being connected to the Father and walking out our faith in a community of believers that he calls a family and expressing devotion to one another in brotherly love. The NASB, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Last Tuesday night, I sat in my living room with an evening for an evening, drinking coffee, eating brownies, with a group of members from our church. All these members were racial minorities. And uh, I was with them asking their experience of the last two years. And on the issues that I raised at the longest introduction to a sermon. World, I set the world into a record today. That, that introduction, all that stuff I talked to you about and said that's where we've been, I asked them about that and a lot about COVID in particular. I wish I could play the video of the conversation. I mean, not that I took a video. I, mean, it wasn't, I don't have a video. It wasn't a hidden camera. But um, it's a figure of speech. I, I wish you could hear the conversation. It was very, very enlightening to me. Very enlightening. I just learned we, we all have perspectives, don't we, and experiences, and none of our experiences are alike. So I, it was very, very great for me. In the middle of the evening, it was very edifying conversation, encouraging, hopeful, and I was telling them about this series and saying, you know, give me your feedback for, before I get into the series. It's probably better to get feedback before than after from people. So um, we're talking, and at one point there's a guy in the group, and uh, He says, I I think we just need to pause and ask this question. What have I learned over the last two years? What has God taught me over the last two years about loving my brothers and sisters? He told me that on Tuesday night I was working on a different sermon. And I thought in that moment, I didn't say this out loud, but I thought, Oh, I got a different sermon for this Sunday because I think that's the word of the Lord. What have I learned in the last two years? And then he went on to make a point where he said, his opinion, he said, I think the last two years have just been a test for the church, just been a preparation for the church. And in some cases we haven't done so well. What will happen when serious darkness or serious persecution uh, comes to the church in our country, how will our unity endure then if this was a warm-up for a harder season ahead? I pray it's not, but what if it is? He's making the point, this is the time for us to look at the church and our relationships and our lives and to repent and to be joined together 
with believers beyond our church as well in, in preparation, ultimately for the glory of God and the good of one another, but in preparation for a more difficult day, which surely may come. If, if we can't stand in spring training, we won't stand in the championship game. He wasn't rebuking anybody. He was just saying, what an opportunity we have. I love it. What an opportunity we have to stop and to pause and ask, what have I learned about loving my brothers and sisters, especially in my church over the last two years? Have I drifted from my church family or have I grown closer in the last two years? Have I seen my need for God's people or have I sort of determined, you know, it was tough at first, but I can sort of just get by on my own. Have my ears grown over the last two years or has my mouth grown digital and analog in the last two years? That is, have I sought to understand my brothers and its sister's experience or just make sure they understand my own and that they've got my opinion loud and clear? Have I reached out to any member who has drifted to the fringe with love and open arms and care? Have I been ready to believe the best about my brothers and sisters? And if in fact they have sinned against me, have I been ready to quickly forgive Have I confessed my own sins? Am I more devoted to brotherly love today than I was two years ago? That's the DTR conversation. That's the update. That's how are we, who are we, where are we? Would you be able to look at my prayers, my time, my service, my finances, my physical presence, and determine that that I am more invested in the purposes of God among his people today than I was two years ago? Am I with the fam? That's the question. Am I with the people of God that he has called me to be with? It is hard to imagine verse 10 being fulfilled without a focused effort. I don't believe that any of us just sort of casually drift in to sacrificial love of our brothers and sisters as a family. I casually drift into love for me. That's my default setting, even as a believer in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit living with me, the Bible on my lap, and Christians around me. My default so often is selfishness. It's about me. What do I think? What are my preferences? I'll do that if it benefits me. And the gospel reorients all of that to it's about him, it's about you, it's about serving and investing in you It is easy to drift, but listen, by God's grace, it is easy to repent and to return from where we have fallen. There is grace available to every one of us that that need to reorient our hearts towards his purpose. Loving with brotherly affection starts with recognizing God is our father by view of your mercy. Jesus, you gave your life and all of the sin The selfishness I just described, you took that upon yourself and paid for my sins so that before the Father, I am the righteousness of God in Christ today. Forgiven and freed. Freed for what? Freed for, verse 9, let agape be genuine. Let my love be genuine as I've received love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's a move that I want to love my brother.
brother and sister with the same love that he has shown me. There's a place to talk about loving the world, the people of the world. There's a place to talk about our calling out there. We'll get to that. But today I'm just talking about the people we are joined to in the body of Christ, the family. We are to love with the love that God has given us. So how is God calling you to express brotherly love, brotherly affection. There are some of us, I don't know of a case, I don't have you in mind, in other words, but I know you're human and I'm human. There are some of us in this church that need to be reconciled with a member of this church that we have offended or we have offended by. It's the person where you walked in here today and you said, I hope they're in the second service because I don't want to see them. That's the person. That's the most important person in this church right now for you. Nobody more important. Get some help. We can help you. Community group leader can help you. Someone can help you. But let's, let's get reconciled if we have. Maybe it's overlooking a minor offense. Maybe I hope they're not in the first service, but come on. They didn't do anything. They didn't know. Just overlook a minor offense. The Bible says it's to your glory and move on. If it's something small and insignificant. I didn't like what they said politically online. Give it a rest. I don't like their stance on COVID. They said this on Facebook. No, that's your brother. That's your brother. They got a different opinion about a secondary, tertiary, fourth, fifth, 100th level issue. Overlook a minor offense in love. Maybe it's stepping up to carry some of the family load. Everyone in the family has chores. The church has chores. In the last two years, a smaller number of people have been carrying more and more responsibility. So that guy used to just do the dishes at the church. Metaphor, not literally. Used to do the dishes. But now he's doing the dishes and the vacuuming and taking out the trash. Because there ain't as many people. So maybe it's stepping up. Sometimes it's just loving by serving. Maybe it's taking initiative to have someone back in your home. Maybe you've been hesitant, but now it's time to have someone back in your home or to take time to listen and pray for somebody. Here's something we can all do. If you're in the room and you actively or participate, um, one thing we can do, all of us, is we can help people who are returning to more consistent attendance, more consistent small group participation, more consistent relationship with people in the church, more consistent serving. We can make it as easy as possible and being as welcoming as possible and encouraging as possible. All of us can do that if we're regularly participating. Some of you watching right now online, I'm going to be blunt. Now is your time. Now is your time to return. I don't know everybody. I can't say that as a blanket statement to everybody, but for some, Now is the time. There may be reasons you aren't gathering, but I want to encourage you. God has so much more for you that he wants you to experience his love through his people, through his imperfect people. Maybe you had a bad experience with someone in the church over the last two years, maybe with one of the leaders. Um, Let us know. Let's work that out. Maybe you've been isolated for so long that it just seems overwhelming to come back. Overwhelming. Um, But we want to help you and and welcome you and trust the Lord with that. 
Uh, maybe you still have concerns for your health or someone else's health and, and COVID, you know? Maybe you think, I don't want to go back because I don't think a lot of people down at that church at this point are wearing masks. I don't want to be the only person in a mask where you can't see the room. But first of all, you're not the only person in a mask. And secondly, come in a mask. Everybody should be free to wear or not wear a mask. And nobody has anybody's business asking somebody else, why are you wearing a mask or why aren't you? It's been two years, friends. Let people make a decision on their own that they feel is right. And let's love and respect that. So nobody will think anything if you come back wearing your mask. That won't be an issue. Maybe you feel like it's been so long. How will I explain where I've been? I mean, I don't want to walk in the room. People go, whoa, I haven't seen you in two years. Oh my, Martha, look who's here. Can you believe it's been two? We're not doing that. (laughs) Let's be glad to see you. It's appropriate to say how you've been, but you tell us in your timetable. It's inappropriate to not have seen someone. If you don't see your family member until a reunion for a while, you, you don't start quizzing them. Uh, some parents do with their adult kids, but you're not supposed to just start quizzing them. You're supposed to say, I love you. Welcome back. Sit with me. Let's make it easy for people. You may have just grown indifferent to the church and you may think you're as good on your own as you are with the people. And with God's love, I want to tell you, you're not. You're wrong. There's no way you can live out the calling of God in your life just as faithfully on your own as you could in community with his people. And God and this church, by God's grace, wants to be as loving and helpful and patient and caring and welcoming as we can possibly be. And I want to say to you, and I should talk to the room too, because some of you maybe only come once every six weeks or something and you happen to be in the room today and go, yeah, tell those people online. Well, okay, you too. Um, (laughs) You need his people and we need you. We need you. The father welcomes you in Christ and has given us the call to welcome one another together. The cross and the empty tomb represent the open arms of Jesus to welcome his people, to fellowship with him and one another, and to fulfill the greatest mission possible, to demonstrate to the world that the Father has sent to the Son, and the evidence is, look at how his people love one another. That's what Jesus said. How will the world know that the Father sent me? Because of your love for one another. So where are we at? We're family. That's our identity. God is drawing us to himself and drawing us to one another. And he's calling us to be patient with one another, to learn and listen from one another, to serve one another. And if it applies to us to move from the fringe to the center by God's grace with the help of his people. um, And if we're in the center to be by activity and I mean, that, that's what the center is. I mean, if you were actively involved, then we got open arms welcoming everybody else into the center as well. Don't need a big explanation where you've been. Just come on. Let's follow Jesus together in his love. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.